The scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus, Jesus then left the, that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. Then he said, Moses permitted a man to ride Uh, to write a certificate of divorce and send her her away. It is because your heart were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh." Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were all in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning I am going to skip 1 through 12 and focus on 13 to 16. (laughs) Kidding. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare our hearts this morning. Father, we come to your word now and we seek your understanding and wisdom. Holy Spirit, may you soften our hearts, may you open our ears, may you unclutter our minds. May we see and know the reality ourselves in the light of Christ's glory. May your words, as you write in 2 Timothy 3.16, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, that we may be more and more Christ-like in our minds, hearts, and bodies. Holy Spirit, tear down the walls that we build around ourselves, that we build around our hearts. May we find healing and reconciliation in you, Christ, even as we lay down our lives as you lay down yours. Amen. Well, I'm gonna, you have to forgive me, I'm fighting a cold for the last couple of weeks, um, but I'm going to jump right in, and, uh, but I'm going to start with this one caveat, so I guess I'm not really going to jump right in, but so there's this, maybe it's an introduction, I guess, I don't know. Yeah, that's what it is. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got to bring a little bit of humor. This is a heavy passage, right? This is a heavy topic in the church and in our culture, and I want to start with this. This, this morning, this passage, these words 
must be applied to our own hearts, our own lives, our own minds first. What I mean is this. Don't in your mind say, well, I hope he's listening. I hope my spouse is paying attention. Right? There's no finger pointing this morning besides to our own hearts. The mirror of Scripture, Scripture is a mirror, right? But it's not a mirror for us to hold outward, shining the truths onto other people, but to reflect to ourselves what God's Word says. I was away at a, a, a conference celebrating Tolkien. It was a nerdy conference. It was awesome. <clears throat> but they talked about how fiction, the goal of fiction is to be a mirror, right? To re- reflect to ourselves, to show ourselves how we can be. So if you find yourself quick to judge your spouse, if you find yourself quick to judge your ex-spouse or that couple over there, I encourage you now, stop. As I prayed in 2 Timothy 3.16, God's word is first to teach me, to rebuke me, to correct me, to train me, to live into the righteousness that I now have in Christ Jesus. So this is a strong passage. This is a hard passage. So much so that even his disciples in verses 10 to 12, they ask about it. They need clarification. But Mark doesn't actually get at their response. If you look at Matthew chapter 19, you've got the parallel passage here. In Matthew chapter 19, 10, the the disciples are shocked. They're they're, they're shocked. Like who in in their right mind would ever get married then? So, so there's, there's something radical going on in what Jesus says here, and, and we're going to get to that, but I am, I am going to start with verses 13 to 16 and then come back to 2 to 12. I, I find it fascinating that the disciples in 13 to 16 are found rebuking people for bringing their children to Jesus when just a chapter earlier we read about uh, Christ welcoming children. It's like they didn't get it, right? He needed to say it again, right? Cultural presuppositions were so deeply rooted in them. Now, if you were with us last week, Matt Brown from Brooklyn did a really good job unpacking uh, Jesus' view on children as well as the concept of greatness uh, in in Jesus' kingdom. See, God's kingdom is backwards to our own. Greatness is backwards to what we think it is. Kids, as well as women, and and Ten gets at this, kids, as well as women, were often mistreated, abused, easily ignored. Kids had no status. And it was even worse for daughters than it was for sons. So what we see here in 13 to 16, as we see in chapter 9, is that Jesus' kingdom belongs to these. It belongs to the weak. It belongs to the insignificant by cultural standards. And not because of any merit or goodness or works on their part. After all, if we have kids, everybody knows kids can be demanding. They can be short-tempered. They can be stubborn. They can be thankless. They can be selfish. In fact, adults can be the same. So it's not anything inherent within the kid so much as it's their helplessness. It's the dependence that they have. They are utterly dependent on others to care for them. That's what Christ is pointing to. That's what Jesus is holding 
them up as an example because of their dependence. To enter the kingdom of God comes through the way of dependence, not independence. Even more, uh, in light of chapter 9 and this passage, Jesus clearly was a lover of children. And and I think, of course I'm biased, I work with students, but I think we are close to the heart of Jesus when we love on children, when we love on the next generation. Pouring into the next generation matters. Whether it's simply getting on the level of a toddler to volunteering in next-gen ministries. And I don't just mean kids' ministries. Middle schoolers need love too. Probably more, I would argue. Now, so that's, that's 13 to 16. That's all I'm going to focus on there. As we move into 2 to 12, <clears throat> um, I, well, I will say one last thing. I think it's fascinating that 9 deals with kids and, the, and, and this portion and deals with kids. And right in between is the conversation of, of, of marriage and divorce. We know kids are incredibly resilient, but studies show the effects divorce has on kids. And whether we want to admit it or not, the, the dependent, the helpless, are often affected. And my prayer is that, that, that my sins, my selfishness, my personal quests do not prevent, the, as the disciples did, the little ones from the warmth of Jesus' arms. Now, <clears throat> this is kind of a mid-script. can't be a post-script because I'm not done. It's not a pre-script. Mid-script. Um, <clears throat> I understand we have a lot of different people in different places here today, right? We have widows. We have singles. We have young people. Divorced, remarried. Obviously, this passage deals with those in married life, in marital life. <clears throat> and, and, but we, we can't skip that just because that's not everybody here. We have to deal with the passage before us. I mean, in our cultural climate, it's fitting that we talk about this rather than skip it. It's fitting that we focus on this, even though it might be a hard saying, even though it might not hit or apply to everyone here today, or God forbid it makes us feel unpleasant, pangs of guilt, or some other emotion that we might have tried to run from or mask or hide from. I think wherever we are, this truth can apply to us all. Because I think at some level, the path to shalom, the path to following Christ, is not marked with signs of my happiness first, but with my laying down my life for those around me. The path, the way, is marked by the cross. So so even if you're not currently married or if you're widowed or single or young and so not married yet, I I think there's application that goes beyond past marital relationship and kind of affects all relationships at some level. So for this passage, I'm going to break it down into three things. Context, we'll talk a little bit about context. We'll talk about principles, <clears throat> some principles that Christ teaches, and then I want to give some warning signs <clears throat> for us. First, context. What was the historical context with which led to this question <clears throat> that the Pharisees lay before Christ? Remember, early on in Mark, the Pharisees joined forces with the Herodians, their enemy. I mean, really, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they joined forces together. 
And so very well, they're posing this question because they're looking to trap Jesus as they did John the Baptist. John the Baptist spoke out against King Herod's immoral marriage. And they're hoping maybe that Christ will do the same. The other possible reason is there was a long-standing debate between two camps uh, concerning divorce within, within Jewish thought. There was the liberal camp and, and the conservative camp. Not much has changed, uh, right? So the conservative school, the conservative thought, uh, was named after Rabbi Shammai. And this all was related to the passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. So um, Shammai and that school of thought taught that what justified divorce was, was really only premarital infidelity, sexual misconduct. That, that was it. It was very conservative what allowed for divorce. Anything less than that was not grounds. The liberal school of thought, after Rabbi Hillel, <clears throat> argued that, that really what, what Moses meant in Deuteronomy 24 was anything a woman did that embarrassed or disgraced or dishonored or merely displeased her husband was grounds for divorce. Really anything, any reason. <clears throat> and by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, if, if you really need to know which one was agreed upon and culturally held to, you, you know, I, well, I don't, I don't know what you think, but the, the liberal camp was the one that most people agreed upon culturally by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. Of course. It lets a man do whatever he wants, right? I mean, that's the fall all the way to us today, right? We don't want things that bind us. We don't want things that constrict us. So that was the prevailing view, the the Hillel view, the liberal view. And I really don't think much is different culturally today, this many years later. We're encouraged to, to, to seek better, that better is good, that, that, that someone out there will make me more happy. If I'm not happy, then I've got to go chase down what will. There was an old commercial, an old Hyundai commercial, that draws attention to this notion, and I want to play it, just forgive the bad uh, um, quality. It was the only uh, one I could find. Instant gratification has us in a stranglehold. So much so that we don't want to fix things anymore. Just replace them. Don't like your nose? Get a new one. Don't like your job? Get a new one. Don't like your spouse? Get a new one. Whatever happened to commitment? To standing by our decisions? I find it fascinating when advertising hits at a cultural issue, and yet really their end goal was not to fix any of those things. It was that you would buy their stuff, right? So the Pharisees ask this loaded question to Jesus, right? And, And Jesus doesn't fall for it. He first responds by, okay, what did Moses command? That's a key word there. And they respond, well, he permitted this. Again, they realize Moses didn't really command this, but he allowed something. He, he permitted a man to give a certificate and send her away. Okay, so the certificate, just so if, if, if you're unfamiliar with that, it was, it was a piece of paper that actually was meant, Moses was attempting to protect 
women. Um, it, was, it was an attempt to protect women from exploitation, even recrimination in, in that culture. Again, um, this, this could have been anathema for them. And the paper said that they're, they're, they're allowed to remarry. It was an attempt to elevate and protect women. Now, Jesus' response brings out a couple principles that I think are worth looking at. First, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm fighting. Uh, the, the cough is just right there on the edge. I'm trying to hold it back because that would sound gross in the microphone. <clears throat> he first draws attention to the why behind Moses' permission, Moses' allowance. In reality, it's a concession, right? Moses wasn't changing God's stance. God wasn't changing his stance. By no means. In fact, God was conceding to our sinfulness, to our own hard-heartedness. See, Moses wasn't licensing a practice. He was attempting to limit a problem. He was attempting to provide boundaries, restraints, and protections, not only for couples, but for women as well. See, Jesus is he's really just ignoring the current debate. He, he's declaring it petty and because that debate, excuse me, that debate focused on, well, what, what am I allowed to do? What can I get away with rather than the why behind the problem? He says God concedes. God gives up ground, not because his standards have changed, but because of our sinfulness. Because of humanity's inability to have their hearts in tune to God's intention, to God's plan, God concedes And he does this in other places. This isn't, God often concedes to our sinfulness. Genesis 9, Exodus 16, Numbers 11, 1 Samuel 8 are places in which God concedes. See, we have to understand that a distinction has to be made between what sets forth the will of God and those provisions that take into account humankind's actual sinfulness and those provisions that are that are ultimately <clears throat> designed then to limit and control the devastating consequences of our own hard-heartedness the pharisees and by and large the the culture had latched on to the concession as permission rather than seeing the higher will of god It's a danger that we can fall into when we start looking into the scriptures for that one verse that will support me. When we start looking for that one friend who will affirm me and my desires. So Jesus, after calling it a concession, what it really is, he's not creating a new law. He's not instituting a new type of legalism, but rather he's appealing to the pre-fall design that God set up, that God created. He's saying, that, that's, that's, that's just a concession. This is what God intended for us. And so the, the first principle, God concedes to us. The second principle, he's, he speaks to marriage's intimacy and permanence. This was God's creational design. This is what Jesus appeals to. 
A monogamous, intimate, enduring marriage. Not a temporary romantic relationship that when feelings fade, ends. Jesus made some pretty radical claims. Pretty radical demands on his disciples, on his followers. And this is no less than that. This call is not, what does God allow me to do? What can I get away with? This is a call to give myself away. The way of the cross. The way of Christ. We often focus on our rights. What are my rights rather than our responsibilities? Now, Jesus does not here in this passage list any exceptions, but I want to talk about those. Any allowances for divorce are are not stated here. But in Matthew 19, 9, he says except for sexual immorality. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 16, speaks of uh, desertion as another allowance. So the Bible allows for divorce in, in, in two exceptions, marital unfaithfulness and desertion of a believing spouse by an unbelieving spouse. But even we have to admit that, that, that these are concessions Divorce is not the ideal. And, and, and the Bible also seems to allow for remarriage in these instances as well. But again, the finger must be applied to our own heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, Our hearts are deceitful above all things. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end the way is death. If you find yourself quickly running to the exceptions, claiming that you are the exception, slow down. Now, I'm not saying that there might not be truth there. I'm not saying that there might not be a true reason why this needs to take place. But I know my heart. I'll twist the truth into a pretzel to justify what I want or what I think is right. Will you do the same? Okay, so I'm moving pretty fast here. At least it feels like it is to me. Um, but I want to apply this. I want to, I want to lay out some, some warning signs and some ways in which I think we can in our marriages and overall in relationships be intentional in caring for the other and giving ourselves away and in caring for the relationship, keeping watch over ourselves. Um, in the early 1900s, there were a couple nautical uh, <clears throat> tragedies that took place. The Titanic was one. Uh, another one was between the Monroe and the Nantucket. So <clears throat> in January of 1914, in the thick Virginian fog just off the coast, <clears throat> excuse me, the Monroe was rammed by the Nantucket. 41 sailors drowned in, in the, the frigid waters of the Virginian coast. And During the trial, the captain of the Nantucket was actually the one on trial because that was the boat that rammed the Monroe. But what was actually learned was the captain of the Monroe was navigating with a compass that was off standard, that wasn't wasn't to true north. It had deviated from the standard by two degrees. Well, it learned that actually a lot of captains kind of just ran their instruments that way and they said it was sufficient. Two degrees is not that big of a deal to run the ship. It was standard industry practice. But we all know that two degrees might not be much here. 
But further down the road, it's way off course. It's exponentially worse. Our hearts are no different. We need to regularly calibrate our hearts to the standard of Christ because our falls into sin, our falls into hard-heartedness, our falls into stubbornness are not great cliffs, but they're gradual. They're the gradual slopes, soft underfoot. It's the cumulative effect that leads us in this direction. That's what Screwtape tells Wormwood in Lewis's masterpiece. He, the guy doesn't need to get away with murder if cards will do the trick. Because it's slowly, gradual, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So I want to throw up a few signposts, questions to check our heart, to check our compasses. <clears throat> do you find yourself holding contempt against your spouse or against other people? Do you find yourself holding on to criticisms? Do you find yourself using hyperbole? Well, they never do this. They always do that. Do you find yourself holding on to resentments? Stonewalling? Are you telling yourself the story that you're the saint and they're the sinner? Are you aiming at trust versus suspicion? Andy Stanley has some great leadership principles that I think can apply here as well, again, in any relationship. We often see two events or two actions. And <coughs> lost it. <coughs> and whether, <coughs> oh, now it's going to start. We often see two events, and whether you want to admit it or not, we're not really rational creatures. We're far more irrational than we want to admit. And we connect those two events by the most irrational way possible. And we tell ourselves, we begin creating this narrative of suspicion rather than trust. And I know these things are easier said than done. I get it. I do it. I feel far more than I even realize. But if this text is, if this call is really before us, we need to take seriously our own hearts. We need to be receptive to feedback. We need to be teachable when somebody's trying to speak into our lives to maybe call out where our heart has gotten a little hard. We need to be quick to acknowledge our faults. And when I say our faults, I don't mean their faults. Quick to acknowledge my faults. Quick to repent. Quick to seek outside help. If we have to do this before isolation sets in, before alienation sets in, before those set in and become insurmountable, before they take root. Hear me, counseling, professional help is not a curse, it's a gift. It's a blessing. If, if you didn't have the tool to build something, you would go to Home Depot, Lowe's, or Ace and get what you needed. You wouldn't just go, well, I'm just gonna glue it unless glue is what you need, but then you got to get the right kind of glue, right? You would seek help on that. May we not be so stubborn. May we not be so blind. May we not be so arrogant to get help and guidance when we need it. 
<clears throat> now these, these, these truths, these words of Christ are not easy. God does, as he says in Malachi, hate divorce. <clears throat> and yet by his grace, God does not hate the divorced person. There is reconciliation, there is redemption in Christ Jesus. No sin is unforgivable. Adultery is not unforgivable. It may have terrible consequences. There may be a fallout that takes place. But God forbid that anyone, and hear me on this, God forbid, <coughs> God forget, forbid that anyone should feel that he or she has sinned themselves outside of the love of Christ. In our confession, in our repentance, as we cast ourselves on the boundless love and mercy and grace of God, we can be forgiven and we can be assured of pardon. Now say this, today is a new day. Today is November 12th, 2017. You can't go back. The past is the past. But you can live forward into the righteousness that Christ has called you to and given to you. You can commit today to your current vows. And we can go hearing the words of Christ. Go and sin no more. There's a beautiful scene in, in uh, Les Mis that it's, it's really powerful, I think, and it applies here. Jean Valjean <clears throat> was a thief. And he shows up at the priest's doorstep. The priest, the bishop, welcomes him in. He had just been released from prison. And yet even in the priest's house, he can't help himself from stealing and running off. And, and I want to show the clip, and I know it might be familiar to us, and I pray that it doesn't become trite or overplayed. But I think we get a glimpse of today's a new day. Now, how will we live? It's, uh, it's about three minutes, um, and I will say the thief punches the bishop, so it's technically PG, um, just to give fair warning.
So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madame Gino, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. Jean Valjean, you no longer belong to evil. You have been bought. You have been ransomed. No one is past redemption. But today is a new day. Today is November 12th, 2017. We go forward into this righteousness. Today is a day to seek love rather than hate, to seek peace, to sow pardon rather than injury. And this call, this, this prayer, again, I think goes beyond marriages. I think it affects friendships. It affects co-workers. It affects moms and dads brothers and sisters. Every single marriage, in fact, every relationship is an opportunity to be a living, breathing invitation to the world around us and an opportunity to showcase the love of Christ to the world around us. And in all of these it requires a posture of dependence like kids. So my prayer this morning is that even though this is a strong call to faithfulness, as God now dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, we are empowered and strengthened to live this way 
in the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, Lord, may we sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Lord, where there is darkness, may we sow light. Christ, our divine Master, I pray that we would not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be loved as to love. Father, this is the way of the cross, and it is not normal, it is not easy, and yet you strengthen us, you abide in us, and you empower us. May we go out today with fresh eyes knowing that today is a new day, that you have bought us, you have ransomed us, we are yours to now go live out in the world and showcase the gospel of Christ. Father, we give you our tithes and our offerings as an act of worship, an opportunity to practice trust over suspicion, Lord. We pray that you would use it to further your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen.